the great thing in these cases is to keep an absolutely open mind. Most crimes, you see, are so absurdly simple. Agatha Christie Welcome to this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. On this month's episode, we're doing something a little bit different this time around. In the episodes of the podcast so far, we've featured two cases in each episode, one murder and one disappearance. But the story we have to tell this month is really a dozen stories or more. And rather than two cases this month, we'll be talking about many, some with victims who were found, and some of them never were. Some of the cases, meanwhile, were solved, but there are plenty of lingering questions to examine in some others. So this month's episode is focused on just one case, but in doing so, we'll cross paths with several more than two cases. It's not that the events or the victims or crimes that we'll discuss this month are any more or any less important than the stories we've told in any of the other episodes. It's more that this story, while it might seem simple enough on the surface, is perhaps the most complicated so far. And to understand it, and to tell it, takes some time. This story also overlaps with as many as a dozen other similar cases that you'll be hearing about along the way. So this month's episode requires a departure from our typical format. As by listener suggestion, we bring you the story of the Rollins Rodeo Murders. The Little Britches Rodeo, or as it's known today, the National Little Britches Rodeo Association, was founded in 1952. It's been televised locally in Wyoming since 1955. And the first ever Little Britches event to be held in Wyoming was in June of 1963, and the town of Rollins was chosen to host the first event. The Little Britches Rodeo is a youth-only event, which, back then, anyway, featured four divisions for boys and girls aged 8 to 17. And in that tour's inaugural weekend in Rollins, Wyoming, Young riders from Dixon, Douglas, Wheatland, and Green River took home the top prizes, and the event was a smashing success. Newspapers across Wyoming, even some in the surrounding states, reprinted the results from that first ride, and an annual Rollins tradition was born. And the town of Rollins took some amount of pride in hosting that youth rodeo event every summer. With a population of something less than 10,000 people in the 60s and 70s, which is roughly the same size as today, the rodeo was a notable event for the locals to have hundreds of families travel from all over Wyoming to watch their kids compete over three days every June. It was a big deal for Rollins. And shortly after, in the following years, the event's organizational body expanded the number of qualifying Little Britches events across the state, adding rides in Laramie to the already established weekend in Rollins every summer, and more qualifying events were brought to more towns every year. When the event was brought to Jackson by the local Chamber of Commerce there, the regular Sunday night rodeo shut down to make way for the Shetlands, Calves, and Bulls and their underage handlers 
and riders, much to the delight of the locals. By 1974, the Rollins Little Bridges event was drawing youth riders from as far away as Las Vegas, Nevada, and rodeo queens from more and more far-flung locales across the Rocky Mountain region were making the trip to Rollins every year. Back when it first had come to Rollins in the early 60s, the event had been held in the last weekend in June every summer, but by 1974, the festivities had become so popular that it seemed just to make sense that the weekend be moved up on the calendar as to coincide with the 4th of July holiday. The result was a nearly week-long celebration of American independence and life in the American West. And in 1974, that year, there would even be a local fireworks display after several years without one. And it's important to remember that by that time in 1974, the rodeo weekend in Rollins had truly become a regional event. Being a way stop on Interstate 80, Rollins was certainly no stranger to visitors in town, but this time every year in midsummer stood out. In no other weekend throughout the year would the town of Rollins see so many different people from so many different parts of Wyoming and beyond out and about around their town and all at the same time. 19-year-old Christy Gross of Bodle, South Dakota, was among the visitors in Rollins for the rodeo that year. As well as to take part in the town's Independence Day festivities, Christy was among those who was especially excited to watch the fireworks this year. And in Christy's case, she was also visiting one of her best friends, also 19-year-old Carlene Brown, who lived in Rollins year-round. Sometime during the day of July 4, 1974, the two of them, Christy and Carlene, left together for the Carbon County Fairgrounds, where the rodeo events were being held. They should have only been gone a few minutes, but they were never seen alive again. After the alarm was raised, police located the van that the girls had driven to the fairgrounds. It was parked in the parking area, but there was no sign of either 19-year-old or any indication of what might have happened to them. In 1983, nine years later, Christy Gross's skeletal remains were found near Sinclair, a town about 10 minutes away along I-80. Cause of death was determined to be at least two blows to the head by a blunt object. After identification of Christie was made by the state crime lab, which was aided by a distinct piece of jewelry that Christie's uncle had made for her being found with the bones, the county sheriff's department surprised everyone by announcing the following day, and keep in mind this is nine years after she went missing, that they might be close to an arrest in the case said a county sheriff's deputy at the time, quote, We do have new leads and at least one suspect, adding that investigators would know more in about a month. But this past month of November 2019 represented the 36th anniversary of Christie's body being found. That is 432 months. And to date, no arrests have been made in the death of Christie Gross or the disappearance of Carlene Brown and Carlene's remains have never been located. She is presumed dead. But more girls would go before the summer of 1974 was out. One month after the July 4th disappearance of Christy and Carlene, 15-year-old Deborah Myers went missing from Rollins. Nineteen days after that, August 23rd, a 10-year-old girl, Jaylene Banker, 
wandered away from the same fairgrounds that the other three girls had disappeared near, and it was only five blocks from her home that she was last seen. She vanished while the rest of her family was watching the rodeo. She was also never seen again. A 15-year-old and 10-year-old girl and two 19-year-old young women had all disappeared in less than three months from the same small town in Wyoming over the same summer. But not all of them made statewide headlines at the time. All four cases clearly were disturbing, but a victim so young, and she was also the last one of the summer. The community was on high alert by then. They didn't know what. They knew something was going on. And even if it wasn't being talked about very far beyond the reaches of Rollins by the fall of 1974, having lost four of its girls, the people of Rollins were eager for answers, eager to do anything to stop what was happening. In the 10-year-old's case, there were at least a few thin leads. A few local persons of interest were brought in for polygraph testing, but they all passed and so were released. In Salt Lake City, a car was searched after two men were arrested for drinking and driving and told police that they'd been in Rollins on the same day as Jaylene's disappearance, but that lead also turned up nothing. Three days after her disappearance, a trucker called the tip line to report a possible sighting of Jaylene near Rock Springs. The girl was riding in a car with at least two adults, one man and one woman, according to the trucker, but he'd been sure... It had been the same girl as the one whose photo he'd seen on the flyer at the truck stop. It was later admitted by law enforcement that some of those tip calls, including that trucker's, were never routed to the officers who were on duty at the time of the call. These four cases, the disappearances of Christy Gross and Carlene Brown on July 4th, that of 15-year-old Deborah Myers a month later, as well as the disappearance of 10-year-old Jaylene Banker three weeks after that in late summer, are all collectively known as the Rollins Rodeo Murders. And across the Rocky Mountain region, around the same time, other cases of varying similarity in victimology and perpetrator M.O. can also be found. Just a few months after the Rollins Murders, the bodies of two 17-year-old girls, Melissa Smith and Laura Ann Amy, were found in an area of the Utah mountains just over the Wyoming line along Interstate 80. The following summer, a year or so after the Rollins' disappearances, the body of a 19-year-old girl named Jean Weaver was found about 20 miles east of Grand Junction, Colorado. All of this in about a 12-month time period. Can you imagine the spate of murders and disappearances happening today? In today's society, the media coverage alone, it was a different time. We have so many more resources, so many more tools. Among other things, the Amber Alert system, which today alerts the public of missing and abducted children immediately through media outlets. But in 1974, the abduction of a girl in Texas named Amber that would eventually lead to that protocol was still 20 years in the future. When it comes to this, the 1970s and 80s were much different America. It led to the peak decade of serial killing in the United States, hunting and killing in the American West. One of the most prolific has also been named, by some, as a possible suspect for the Rollins Rodeo murders. 
As one proponent of this theory puts it, quote, We know Ted Bundy lived in both Colorado and Utah. What's in between? Interstate 80 and Rollins. That's coming up next. Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible this month by the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Most who live in Wyoming know just how geographically blessed they are. Wyoming is one of this country's hidden gems, and Riverton is a gateway to adventure right in the middle of the cowboy state. It's in a great place to jump off to Yellowstone, to the Tetons, world-class skiing, mountain recreation, casino gaming, cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Indian Reservation. It's one of the most culturally, historically interesting places that you'll visit if you're into that sort of thing as well. And when you're in Riverton, you're going to want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn & Suites is conveniently located in Riverton. It serves a free hot breakfast, so important to get your day of adventure off on the right foot. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. If you're a fan of this podcast, you should know that they have been a sponsor from the start. Have yourself a vacation or a staycation. Find any excuse to stay at the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming and feel the Hamptonality. Now, just to be clear, I have asked a few Ted Bundy experts about this connection to the state of Wyoming, whether or not there was one. And each of them told me there is no established connection between Ted Bundy and Wyoming. There isn't any evidence I'm aware of that he'd ever even been to the state. But we cannot say there is no connection. A lot of Ted Bundy's time in the early 70s, we don't know exactly where he was, not for the entirety of it anyway. And he did travel extensively across the American West during this time. And we don't know where Ted Bundy was at the time of the Rollins Rodeo murders in the summer of 1974. But we do know where he was six months later. In January of 1975, Ted Bundy killed Carolyn Campbell near Aspen, Colorado. It was after being arrested for this crime that he would famously jump out of the window of a courthouse to escape. While it was speculated in a few press reports at the time that Bundy and an accomplice might have been hitchhiking to Wyoming following his escape, Those reports were from before he was found, and we now know these reports were not true. And there is nothing in the unredacted portion of the FBI file of Ted Bundy's, which was released several years ago, that indicates any connection between Ted Bundy and Wyoming, let alone that he'd been responsible for any murders in the state. Now, I'm one who understands the evils of Ted Bundy as much as anyone. And being one of America's more romanticized serial killers, by the way, his savagery is often forgotten or just not known. Somehow dissolves amidst his charisma and the ethos now of his legend, for want of a better word. But Ted Bundy was a more brutal killer than most people realize. In fact, I wonder if he would be so mythologized if everyone could see photos of the savagery of his murders if they could view video, if it existed, of what Ted Bundy did to the bodies of the women he killed, and then what he would return to do to their bodies again and again for days and for weeks after they were dead. These are aspects of Ted Bundy that aren't 
disgust, and that seemed to evaporate when we see old video of him being interviewed or representing himself in his trial. Ted Bundy was about as bad as they get. But what about Ted Bundy as the Rollins rodeo murderer? You know, sometimes in looking at theories for unsolved cases like this, we somehow manage to overlook the most basic common sense elements. For example, the Rollins rodeo disappearances occurred over basically an entire summer. The first two disappearances and the last are eight weeks apart. So if one person is responsible for all four, it means he lived there, or he lived nearby for the summer, or at least he was a very frequent visitor. Wouldn't it stand a reason that Ted Bundy might have stood out just a little bit in Rollins, Wyoming in 1974? And at the absolute least, the people of Rollins would have remembered Ted Bundy when he was all over the national media the following year, as his trial in Florida was one of the biggest news events of that year. I'll acknowledge it's possible that Ted Bundy is the Rollins rodeo killer. Sort of an interesting theory as these things go, but I'm skeptical to say the least, and the reason why is simple. Because to try to do all this work to put Bundy in Wyoming, in Rollins, over the summer of 1974, ignores a much simpler explanation for what happened to those four girls and dozens of others along the interstate corridors of the American West during the 70s. The truth is, there were a lot of Ted Bundys out there. Most of them you've never heard of, and some of them were never caught. One of those most dangerous was a man named Royal Russell Long. On a Friday in February 1981, or some seven years now after the Rollins' disappearances, Royal Russell Long filed for divorce from his wife Elaine at the Natrona County Courthouse. And the following Friday, one week later, he married his second wife, Dawn. The marriage was also Dawn's second, and while it would not be her last, fortunately for her, it would be by far her shortest. Whatever had drawn Don to Royal Russell Long evaporated quickly. And two years later, she was married to another man. Despite his apparent shortcomings on the relationship front, his first marriage didn't last very long either. Royal Russell Long was well-known and well-liked in Natrona County. He had many friends. He was very affable and easy to like, according to those who knew him. Though there had always been rumblings about the man's potential for temper although very few who knew Royal Russell Long or spent any time with him had actually seen that temper firsthand. In 1984, 20 months after his second divorce, two girls running away from their boarding school and hitchhiking from South Dakota to Idaho were offered a ride by an older man in a brown Chevy truck with silver stripes and a white camping shell. One of them would later say an older man with a long gray beard pulled over and forced them into his truck at gunpoint. He then drove them to a house where he raped them both. Despite her wrists and feet being tied, the older girl, who was 15, managed to escape and call the police. But when they arrived, the man and the young girl, who was only 11 or 12 at the time, were both gone. The home where the girls were raped belonged to Royal Russell Long, 
then 49 years old, and police immediately launched a statewide ground and aerial manhunt for both him and the missing girl. Although a description of the missing girl wasn't distributed right away that night due to what appears to have been, let's call it a procedural oversight. But Russell's name was, and the next day, the girl's description was in the hands of law enforcement across the region as well. And the search for the two commenced in earnest at daybreak. Two days into the search, and without any sign so far of Royal Russell Long or his apparent captive, the missing girl's father arrived in Wyoming from South Dakota. A member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Indian tribe, Taylor Bald Eagle made a direct appeal to his daughter's kidnapper to release her, if nothing else, so that he and the rest of the family might see her alive again. The local district attorney also made a point of conveying to the media that Wyoming law would provide for the possibility of a reduced sentence if a kidnapping victim is released unharmed. But meanwhile, unknown to the public and the press, was that authorities' concern for the missing girl had heightened dramatically. When processing Long's home, police had discovered a fair amount of blood at the scene. The manhunt for Long was a daily drip of statewide news coverage. For a certain time in 1984, the whole state was talking about it. And there were all sorts of theories, many ranging opinions, about whether the girl would be found, whether she'd be found alive, or if Long would be, for that matter. That's when the psychics came, remotely claiming clairvoyance from across the country and offering their services, which, by the way, the police and the missing girl's father took, at least somewhat seriously. After the first 48 hours, there was a building question as to whether or not the fugitive would ever be found. And day by day, the fear of the fates of this helpless hostage increased exponentially. But then, one week after the abduction, Royal Russell Long was arrested on exiting a phone booth at a convenience store in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He had attempted to run from the two FBI agents who were there in response to a tip called in by a local, but he was quickly subdued. Unfortunately, Sharon Bald Eagle was not with him. And in the days after Long's arrest, the FBI finally admitted that they had no new information as to her whereabouts, even while her captor sat in their custody. But strangely, Long had talked to several people he knew in the days following the abduction, and a fair number of those people came forward to tell police that Royal Russell Long had told them that he'd sent the girl to Texas with a long-haul trucker. Some people say it was a bus. Police weren't sure whether or not they believed any of it, and neither were Long's friends. Now, I mean, given the events of the week prior, at least it was a lead for investigators to go on. At his first court hearing in New Mexico, Long decided not to fight extradition back to Wyoming and face charges there. In fact, he told the judge, quote, I want to get back there as quickly as possible, unquote. In the following weeks, authorities continued their search for Sharon around Natrona County, and her father told reporters he'd received a church prophecy of where she was. What he called a church prophecy was taken seriously enough by investigators. It led to a ground search of a rural area in Natrona County, but to no result. The tip of the trucker headed to Texas was a long shot, police knew, but at least it was something tangible to draw investigators' focus away from the psychics and oddball tipsters, and there were more than a few. About this time in early October, 
a 52-year-old Evanston man was arrested for threatening to blow up the Natrona County Jail, where Royal Russell Long was being held. Ronald Dolby had reached out to the Sheriff's Department several times, offering to personally assist in the interrogation of Royal Russell Long. Dolby had told police he wouldn't hesitate to use a blowtorch on him, if that's what it took to get the information about the missing girl's whereabouts. When police, for some reason, declined Mr. Dolby's help, he threatened to blow up the jail. And a month gone, the desperation of Taylor Bald Eagle to find his missing daughter became painfully palpable. As he struggled to keep his daughter's name in the press and awareness of her case alive, he offered up that all charges against Royal Russell Long should be dropped in exchange for any information leading to Sharon's location and safe return. Long's right against self-incrimination under the Constitution, though, put authorities searching for the missing girl between a rock and a hard place here. And Long remained silent as his case slowly began to make its way through the system. Meanwhile, search efforts for Sharon were still underway every day at this point. But the search area had ballooned to a colossal 5,000-square-mile area, which included the Laramie Mountains and the Medicine Bow National Forest. Around then, on October 19th, a 79-year-old man wrote a letter to the Casper Star Tribune. In his letter, Albert Johnson claimed to have seen a native girl sitting inside a truck at a rest stop near Glendo along Interstate 25. Johnson said in his letter he'd also seen a man matching the description of Royal Russell Long walking into the truck stop away from the vehicle. Police were notified of the letter, and while it took some time to locate Mr. Johnson, he was eventually questioned by police. But that information, like all other leads in the case, ultimately proved fruitless. The calendar turned over to 1985. Sharon Bald Eagle was still missing for three months now and Royal Russell Long's trial was set to begin in earnest. But while it initially appeared as though Long would plead not guilty to all seven felony counts against him, his public defender even went so far as to file a change of venue motion anticipating a trial. But just a few weeks after that, in January of 1985, Royal Russell Long pled guilty to charges relating to the rapes of the two girls, for which he was sentenced to two life terms in prison. Long's name has been raised in connection with similar crimes across the country. Authorities in Oklahoma have proof that he was in the area when two teenage girls disappeared in Oklahoma City in 1981. The girls had been offered a job unloading a truck full of stuffed animals at the state fair, according to witnesses. Which might bring a chill to your spine as you recall the Rollins disappearances in 1974 at the Carbon County Fairgrounds. A year after pleading guilty to the Wyoming charges, Long was transported to Oklahoma to answer for the disappearance of Cinda Paulette and Charlotte Kinsey, who were both 13 when they disappeared from the Oklahoma State Fair. By then, detectives and prosecutors from Oklahoma had become more than convinced that Royal Russell Long was responsible for their missing persons cases as well. They were even prepared to bring charges against him for the murders of the 13-year-olds, and it being Oklahoma... They weren't shy about the prospect of seeking the death penalty in the case. But what these authorities in Oklahoma lacked was evidence. 
Not even by the pre-DNA standards of 1985 at the time was there sufficient evidence to even bring charges against Royal Russell Long in the Oklahoma cases. And this became clear at the pretrial hearings. All the state had was a prosecution expert who worked for the sheriff's office, by the way, who compared hair that was found in a car rented by Long to hair from the brush of one of the victims and testified that the hairs were, quote, similar. It was not possible using the science of the time to say that the hairs would be any more linked than that. They also had a witness who testified that Long, quote, resembled the man that he'd seen with the girls unloading the truck at the fairgrounds before they vanished. But that was it. And while Royal Russell Long may well have killed Cinda Pallett and Charlotte Kinsey, the state of Oklahoma wasn't able to even begin to prove it in court, and the charges against him were dismissed. Authorities still believe those girls' bodies are in Oklahoma, but they've never been found. As for Sharon Bald Eagle, there have been sightings of her in other states over the years. But sadly, no trace of Royal Russell Long's 11-year-old kidnapping victim has ever been found. Long himself died inside the Wyoming State Penitentiary, perhaps ironically enough, in Rollins, in 1993. Taylor Bald Eagle is still working to keep his daughter's name and legacy alive. He is part of an effort earlier this year that spawned a new South Dakota state law, which he believes to be the first step in understanding and addressing the depth of the problem of missing and murdered indigenous women across America. Sharon Bald Eagle would be 47 years old today, and Taylor celebrates her birthday every year. There remains at least a little question as to Long's involvement in the Oklahoma cases. There's also equally scant evidence to tie him to the Rollins abductions, by the way, but many in Wyoming believe strongly that Royal Russell Long is your Rollins rodeo murderer. At the time that he abducted those girls in Evansville, he was also part owner of a go-kart track near the Natrona County Fairgrounds. He was also a former long-haul trucker himself. We know he was very familiar with towns along Interstate 80, including Rollins and Sinclair. Long was a felon at the time of the rapes in 1984, but he did not have a violent criminal record at that time. His convictions to that point had been for contempt of court and attempted escape from incarceration. And he never admitted any wrongdoing in any state and later claimed that he was coerced into pleading guilty in the sex assault charges that earned him a life sentence. After falling victim to what he calls a police conspiracy, Long said, quote, I fell for it like a donkey, unquote. But Long's silence is now a permanent one. One might want to hope, actually, that he did not commit those crimes, because if he did, we'll probably never know it for sure. Only one of the four Rollins disappearances have so far produced any remains, those of 19-year-old Christy Gross. But it's possible that her 19-year-old friend, Carlene Brown, has already been found as well, and that we just don't realize it yet. You see, while it's very rare finds, there have been over the years Jane Doe victims that have been found matching the approximate age, size, and gender of Carlene that have never been identified. DNA testing could provide the answers to whether or not Carlene Brown's remains have been found as well. In fact, a technician named Janet Franson at the University of North Texas once tried to track down Carlene Brown's family for this purpose, to try to match DNA to unidentified remains. But the problem that she had 
was an unusual one. She couldn't find anybody. She couldn't find any of Carlene's family. Not one family member, at least not yet. So if anyone listening to this podcast is related to or knows someone who might be related to Carlene Brown of Rollins, Wyoming, who was 19 years old in 1974, or her father, Carl Brown, or her brother, Rick Brown, you can send me an email, wyomingpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll put you in touch with the proper people so that maybe we can move one of Wyoming's unsolved cold cases into the solved column, or at least part of it. All four of those Rollins rodeo murders remain unsolved today. As we take those events from that summer in now, I feel like I should remind you of something that I often remind myself when I'm trying to make sense of such events. In the researching of suspects and in trying to find other potential links and victims, that is this. Correlation does not necessarily equal causation. In this case, just because four young girls and women disappeared from the same town in the same summer doesn't mean that they were killed by the same man, necessarily. But then again, they very well may have been. There were plenty of American monsters who took victims from Wyoming and the West in the 1970s and 80s. In crimes that we see far less often today, that's a good thing. But correlation does not always equal causation. And just because there are fewer such crimes today does not mean that there are fewer criminals. And there very well may be just as many monsters roaming the American West today. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. I hope you didn't mind too much the departure from our usual format to tell this slightly more complicated and layered story, but I felt we needed to take the time to tell this one right, which I hope we did. I want to send some thank yous out to a couple of listeners. Thanks to Kate and Kelsey, our first two Patreon supporters. Mentioned in the bonus episode, but uh, mention it here as well. We have a brand new Patreon page set up for the podcast. And with Kate in and Kelsey in, two down, 98 to go. Because as soon as we reach 100 supporters, however long that takes, I'm going to be hosting a private meet and greet party just for Dead and Gone listeners in Wyoming. So right now there's a $10 a month level of support. And with that, you receive all the episodes early as soon as they're done. And there will be more bonus content and extra goodies coming soon as well. And if you're not able to support the show on Patreon, that's more than fine. I appreciate everybody who's listening, every one of you. But if you are, it does help the show sustain itself. So you can log on to patreon.com slash Podcast to show your support there. Or you can just Google it, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and Dead and Gone in Wyoming, and you'll find it that way too. Also, I mentioned this already, but there's a brand new Gmail address just for the podcast. You can use it for episode comments, feedback, case suggestions. You can use it to ask questions in our monthly bonus episode that will be released now about the middle of every month. That is wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, we've already reached the end of our time for the month. So for Amanda Faring, Terry Wiblamo, Jared Anderson, Amanda Goddard, and Will Hill at county10.com, I'm Scott Fuller. Already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.